This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, a show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is author, entrepreneur, CEO, and often keynote speaker, Trey Taylor. Trey Taylor is the CEO of Taylor Insurance Services, Managing Director of Trinity Blue Consulting, and Founding Partner of Ascend Partners. He is the author of A CEO Only Does Three Things. He has a wealth of business knowledge. Here is my conversation with Trey Taylor. Trey Taylor, welcome to the Story King Podcast. John Carlo, thanks so much for having me, man. Excited to uh, be with you and chat today. Me as well. Usually I ask the guests to give me a little introduction of themselves, but I actually want you to begin by giving us a little mini lesson from history that we can then apply to a business principle, because I know you do that at conferences when you're a keynote speaker. So why don't you give us a taste of that? Yeah, that is exactly what I do. So I always choose sort of a historical vignette, and then I draw some uh, lesson from that that we can use in our business. And I'll tell you what's uh, sort of occupied my mind for the last little bit here is the story of uh, uh, Julius Caesar at the banks of the river Rubicon. So uh, your listeners will probably remember this from sort of middle school history, but uh, you know Julius Caesar comes from uh, sort of the Roman patrician elite of, of Rome, like the top 12 families. Uh, his genealogy, they trace back to the goddess Venus, you know, so this is a very lofty uh, bunch of people. They felt, the entire group of patricians felt like they were born to rule Rome. That was why they were, were born and, and they had privileges and, you know, and rights to do that. And so w- one of the ways that you did that, of course, was to become elected uh, consul, which is uh, you, you always elected two consuls at a time. And the way to get to be consul, and this is how the Roman mind worked, like, you know, begin with the end in mind and then step down the ladder and start doing the things to get up the ladder. And so the way that you did that most successfully was to come in uh, and and command an army in the field. And at this point in the Republic's history, which we're talking um, uh, 40s and 50s BC, so uh, Caesar crosses the Rubicon in 49 BC, you know, at that point in their history, they're going into the really scary parts of the world where people didn't speak Latin, they didn't speak Greek, they didn't you know, observe customs that seemed familiar. Rather, they were barbarians, which comes from the Greek interpretation of what foreign language sounds like, which is ba 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 ba. That's what you know, foreigners sounds like. Maybe even to us today. And so, you know, it was this really scary thing for you to drive an army of of cultured Romans into the hinterlands and into the wilderness and fight these very scary barbarians. And that's exactly what uh, Caesar did. Uh, as you know, he conquered uh, Gaul. He con- and Gaul uh, formed parts of France, the Lowlands, uh, some parts of Spain, uh, all the way over into some parts of uh, of Germany to the west of the Rhine, uh, and uh, you know lots of different uh, cultural groups he would run into there, lots of different uh, tribes, uh, that sort of thing. And then also, you know, he he went to Britain, sort of stuck his foot in the toe, and say, okay, now uh, Britain is owned by Rome, and you know, then he came back. It was sort of a weekend type excursion almost. And so as he's done all of this thing in his commission as general or imperator, emperor, literally is a translation of general, as, as he's coming back towards Rome, there was a law in Rome that said you cannot come into Italy uh, under arms. You can't have an army that is armed and ready to fight. And so the rule was that at the Rubicon River, which you and I would not consider a river, it's just sort of this little stream or creek you know, it's not like the mighty Mississippi or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, that you would, you would, you would stand off there. You would sort of begin to disband parts of your army, send them to their home, you know, and that sort of thing. But if you were to receive a triumph, you were allowed to hold some of that army together and come back into the city and have a celebration. And as part of the triumph, which is literally the pinnacle of life for a Roman, 
a handful of Romans received a triumph in all of Roman history. Uh, it is really what it means to be at the top of Roman history is to receive a triumph. And the triumph was sort of a week-long party. They closed down Main Street, which is called the Via Sacra in Rome, and it goes right through the Forum, right through the arches that you and I have seen if we've been uh, to Rome, of course. And uh, the wine flows free in the streets. Everybody takes you know, the week off of work, uh, and the spoils of war are distributed as they come into the city. And it is just really, th- it is just an amazing thing. It is such a heady experience, such an egotistical experience that they assigned a slave to ride behind the uh, general, the conquering general. And the slave's sole task was to whisper in his ear, you are a man, you are no God, you serve Rome and its interests over and over and over again, right? Because you have the entire, you know, they, called, uh, they called Rome the navel of the world. Literally the center of their universe was the city of Rome. The entire city is there shouting your praises, uh, you know, lavishing praise on you and that sort of thing. And you needed something to anchor you and to remind you that you weren't sort of Zeus, you know, or uh, Jupiter <laughs> coming back to the city. And so, um, you know, this is what was on, on promise uh, to Caesar and his army. And for his army, you know, most likely you're some, you know, country bumpkin that the army shows up in town and says, you, you, and you, you're coming to the wars and Gaul to fight. You didn't have any uh, choice in the matter whatsoever. But if you returned, you got a share of the spoils and you got land to farm and to have slaves that you captured and brought back and farm for you. And it was really this path. As long as you could live through the wars, you could become uh, somebody of substance in your community uh, from then on. And um, and so here they are camped at the at the banks of the river. They set the general's tents up. They are figuring out how do we disband our armies? What do we do here? And that sort of thing. And in the city is a a lot of resentment against Caesar because Caesar had been sending treasures back and and there was always this this fear about Caesar that he wanted to declare himself king of Rome and and Romans hated kingship, they hated it. The Republic was founded on the blood of kings. They had murdered the previous line of kings. They did not want anything to do with a king in Rome. and you and I have read Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar in the ninth grade, and we remember that that's what they were whispering in the streets. So Caesar camps at the river. They're worried, you know, that uh, in the city that he's coming to conquer the city to be king in Rome. And so the Senate uh, sends a herald, an ambassador, to come and say to Caesar, uh, disband your armies. You will not be given a triumph. You will not be allowed to stand for consul. Your men will not receive the land that you have promised them, uh, and you will be indicted and, uh, and go to trial for crimes against the republic, which are here unnamed. Uh, and then, in, you know, we live in stupid political times. doesn't matter what side of the aisle that you sit on. These are stupid political times. But in what I think is the most stupid uh, political blunder of all time, the Senate signed the letter uh, to, to, with the Herald fear this and tremblingly obey us. Caesar is a gentleman. He is a very polished uh, speaker. He's an extremely polished writer. He and Cicero hated each other, and Cicero still found within him uh, the praise to say that Caesar's the best communicator in the Latin language. I came, I saw, I conquered, right? Mm -hmm. That's Caesar. Cicero would take 12 volumes to say the same thing. Right. And so uh, Caesar is full of good manners. And he says to the herald, I will give you my answer in the morning. And then he goes and he's pacing the side of the river all night long. The herald uh, you know, goes to sleep, watches his television, whatever he does, and wakes up the next morning and then comes back, has his breakfast and goes to find the general in his tent. And the tent has been struck. It has been taken down and put into uh, traveling posture. And then he goes down and he finds Caesar in full general's regalia on his horse at the side of the river. And uh, he's aghast. He cannot believe what he's about to see this herald. And, the, and, and Caesar's giving his orders to his troops to move into Italy to violate the, the Senate's order. And he looks at uh, the herald and he says in a, in a cheeky sort of way, this is a joke, it's an inside joke that we don't get. But he turns and he says to him, alia jacta est, which means in Latin, the die is cast. 
and 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 he isn't being Caesar cast out of marble the way that we sort of think of Caesar. He's being really sort of funny here because this is what Roman uh, centurions and Roman soldiers would say before they cast dice and take each other's money and you know gamble a little bit, right? He's he's saying that I'm about to take up the gamble, mm-hmm. and then he spurs his horse and he rides over the river Rubicon into history. And my point in telling the story all the time is if he didn't cross that river on horseback, you and I probably wouldn't know his name, except as a footnote of some Roman general who conquered some tribes, right? You and I don't know the name of the general that conquered the Germanic tribes on the east side of the the Rhine. We have no idea who that guy is, but Caesar we know. And why do we know him? Because he put spurs to horse, because he made a very uh, calculated risk. And when he arrived in Rome, it was empty of his enemies. As soon as they heard he was coming, they fled. They fled to Egypt, which was a Roman possession at that time. They fled to Greece, which was a Roman possession, to Sicily, to Sardinia. They got out of harm's way completely. And Caesar ruled Rome as a dictator for five uninterrupted years after that. And he reorganized all of Roman life and society in doing that. And he wouldn't have done any of that if he didn't make what I call the Rubicon decision, the decision that you make from which there's no retreat and which changes every other decision you will ever be called on to make. And so when I speak on stages or, or do the executive coaching that I do, I am constantly encouraging you know, the audience to look for the, the Rubicon choice in your own life and business. And we all have them. You know, I can ask you, like, what is the Rubicon choice? That choice that you made in your past which changed every choice you made in your future. Hmm. And uh, and so that's the little historical vignette that I'm sort of overly obsessed about <laughs> lately. And I talk quite a bit about when, when we're doing uh, stuff from the stage or even uh, smaller group stuff as well. That's a fascinating story. I mean, is the general principle then to take the calculated risk? I mean, because not only is it a calculated risk, but it's either going to get him everything or nothing. So or nothing. Yeah. So, I mean, is that what you're basically saying to business owners that you have to find where you can put it all on the line. Is that kind of the Rubicon decision? Yes, exactly right. That's exactly the uh, the formulation. I love chess. I'm not great at chess, but mm-hmm. I love chess and I love studying the great chess masters, the grandmasters. And the grandmasters have a, a common rule amongst all of them. They all put it different ways, but they have a common rule. And the common rule is always leave yourself options. Right, because mm. that that uh, chessboard has sixty four squares, but it can get small really quickly depending on you know what your opponent is doing. Always leave yourself options. But they also all say there comes a moment in the game where it's time to commit yourself to one course of action and ha- and play that through to the end to see if that wins the game for you. And what I see in American business today is that you know we have more choices available than we ever have before. When I was a kid, and 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 you were you know roughly the same age as I am, we had uh, two flavors of Oreo. It was Oreo and double stuffed Oreo. That right. was it. You know, <laughs> right. um, there are more than three thousand flavors of Oreo today. Wow. We have matcha green tea. <laughs> we have uh, a cappuccino. I've seen. We have Halloween a, a ghost that's orange colored and has some flavor. We have cinnamon. We have. Um, you know, all just 3,000 flavors of Oreos is absolutely amazing. There are 300 flavors of Kit Kat. I had no idea. You know, you can tell where my heart is here. You know, we have too many choices in life. And, uh, and part of the genius that comes from American business is being able to choose the one choice that leads us through to victory, whatever that means, maybe over a competitor or maybe over, uh, you know, circumstances in the marketplace. And so uh, one of the reasons that I'm waving this flag so much is that you know, the timidity of being able to sit on the sidelines and sort of exist with no mm-hmm. um, definite purpose or without your sales set. I think that uh, ended March 22nd of last year during the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, we have to be so much smarter today in choosing the right choice. And so that's why I'm waving the flag of the Rubicon choice so so vigorously lately. Wow. I mean, there's two things I'd like to unpack. One of the things too, what what you're telling me, it also reminds me of when you think about people who win big within stocks and investments, right? It's usually not because they have such a diversified portfolio. That's the safe option. It's usually because they win big on 
a winner, <laughs> you know, and That's they right. put all their yeah. chips in this one thing and it won. And it kind of reminds me of the same principle, you know, that you you got to find that decision where you can put it all on the line and then just go for it. So that's kind of interesting that that seems to be true. Uh, it reminds me of the movie, The the Big Short and the book by Michael Lewis, The Big Short. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Uh, it is so great. And you'll remember the doctor's name. I'm blanking on his name just now, but uh, his name's not as important as the strategy, which is what you're you're sort of drawing a circle around that that book and that movie was all about that there were five or six or 10 people in the entire country who were betting against what everyone else saw as right. a sure thing. And they really only held, I mean, maybe they held multiple assets, multiple expressions of it. But they really only held one bet, which was this thing's a house of cards is going to fall down. Right. And if I remember the details right, I think they had, you know, 15, 25 million dollars at risk and walked away with a billion or a billion two or something of that nature, you know? And, um, and, and so you know, exactly to your point, they made a Rubicon choice and then had the stones or had the nerve to, uh, to see it through to the end. And they got paid handsomely for doing that. Right. And it reminds me too, a little bit of the, the GameStop fiasco, right? <laughs> like, like everybody's just betting against these small companies. And then uh, the people sort of just reverse that. And, and win yeah. big by doing it. I mean, they, it's a game that they sort of played to their own advantage. Yeah, it's funny. I, I spoke last week on a stage and one of the guys there had a, a gold medal in uh, judo from the Olympics from mm. about 10 years ago. And he was speaking about uh, investment philosophy and how uh, you can use the principles of judo, which is to use your opponent's strength against them. And mm. he brought up GameStop. Because that's exactly what these uh, these guys who were combating the short did. Instead of shorting the stock, they said, hey, if we make it a lot more valuable, these guys with short positions are going to have to come right. buy us out. And they only buy us out if we decide to sell. And the longer we don't decide to sell, the more money we get. <laughs> right. So um, a real sort of prisoner's dilemma there. But uh, yeah, really interesting uh, scenario. The other thing that I thought was interesting that I'm sure you can apply and maybe you do in, in terms of business ethics is the guy whispering, you're not a God, you're a man, because he's winning so big that there's a job for somebody to just bring them back down to earth. How do you see that? I, I can easily see that being applied in the business sense when you're winning big, you need to be grounded as well, because you know we, we don't live in a stable world. Anything can go That's right. you know, just like that. Yeah, nobody uh, you know can put their hand on the on the uh, sort of sales and produce solid gold every single uh, time they try. Uh, so yeah, I, so we see that a lot. I see the opposite true as well. But but hmm. to your point, yes, we see people who who have success and then begin to believe that they can't do anything but success. Right? All I do is win. Uh, it's the Kanye factor. You know, yeah. we do see that for sure. And Kanye uses it, uh, you know, to really good effect. That's part of his brand, you know, that he's a genius and all of that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, I heard Jamie Foxx tell a story that Kanye actually was uh, uh, was uh, was introduced to Jamie Foxx at his house. Jamie Foxx has this recording studio at his, mm. at his house. And uh, he discovered Ed Sheeran, who came and, and got into the studio with him oh, wow. as a guest of somebody else. And he said, oh, my God, this guy's going to be great. And they couldn't believe it because they didn't think he was going to be good. But Kanye comes in and, you know, he lays down a track. It's whatever his new song's going to be. And he's not Kanye at this point. He's nobody. And uh, and Jamie <laughs> Jamie Foxx, you know, sort of gets in and like does some things and scats back and forth with him a little bit. And Kanye, who is a nobody, says, don't do that. <laughs> That's not what I was going for. That's not who I'm trying to be, you know, that sort of thing. So he's always been Kanye. Right. And, uh, and you know, somebody needs to be behind him saying, uh, you're, <laughs> you're not really Kanye, you know, you're not a God or something of that nature. But what I see way more often in working with the executive coaching that I do mm. is executives, uh, you know, especially CEOs and owners and the guys that are really throwing those dice, never take a moment to sit back and say, that was well done. Like mm. I did a good job on that. You know, I'll take a pat on the back. I'll go back to work in five seconds, but I'll take the pat on the back. Mm -hmm. And in all other instances in life, especially with the pandemic, we hear a lot about self-care and self-love and, you know, that sort of thing. And we're going on yoga weekends or whatever that happens to be just to take care of ourselves. It's not happening a lot in the CEO sphere. Hmm. So, yes, I think it's important uh, to have, you know, someone keep you grounded for sure. But I also think it's important to have somebody, maybe I'm, I'm saying, you know, we need a devil and an angel on our shoulders. 
to have somebody in your life who says uh, something that that I shared with someone this week, access to you is pure privilege, right? You, you do nothing but good things for other people to make an impact in their lives. We don't hear those things. Uh, maybe it's a, um, most of my clients are men because most of the C-suite um, you know, are men and men don't share those kinds of things quite as readily as other modes of feeling might do. Maybe it's that, or maybe it's something completely different, but uh, I think it is very important to have that a, as a balance um, in your life, to have people who will say nice things and people who will keep you grounded if you need to be kept grounded as well. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah, you're right. Because a lot of times on the path to success, you're just, you're on the path and you just keep going and going and going, not taking time to have your own little mini triumph, <laughs> you know, to have your yeah, own yeah, little yeah. It's uh, a great, celebration. great way to put it. Yeah, great way to put it. It, I, I think of it in this term. Why is the only time I read something nice about myself or hear something nice about myself when it's put in an article? Right. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense, right? There's, it's an indefensible position for that to be the case. So I take it as a personal obligation to sort of step outside that half step of, of a personal you know, safe space and be able to say to somebody, if it's true, now it has to be authentic and true, mm-hmm. but if it's true, I think it, it's, it's incumbent on me to let people know that you're damn good at this and you should you should be proud of the work that you are doing. And maybe not everybody sees it, maybe not everybody says it, but I want you to know in this moment at this time from me, I see it and I recognize it. It's a positive thing. It never fails to be a positive thing when I do that. Right. No, that's very cool. More more people should do that, I think. That we should all the world do that. A better yes. Place. <laughs> yeah, so we should all do that. <laughs> So Trey, I'm, I'm, I'm interested now. I'm, I'm locked in here to you. So what is your story now? Why don't you give us a little background about yourself, letting us know who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I run a uh, family office. Uh, we manage wealth for four generations of my family. That wealth, such that it is, uh, started in a business that my grandfather founded in the late 50s in the insurance and employee benefits space. We still own that business and we acquire uh, businesses that look like that business from a, a private equity standpoint. We love to own things that we really understand. We do some real estate investment and uh, development as well. Uh, and we do quite a bit of um, early stage technology investment. Uh, and then on the side of all of that, I do uh, executive coaching because coming to the position that I'm in, and I came to it in a little bit uh, unfortunate way, taught me that I had to learn the position. Uh, and then the best way to learn something is to teach your learnings to others later. And so that's sort of how I came to it. My dad passed away in 2005, very unexpectedly. And I was on this trajectory where I was a, had gone to law school, was in the venture capital business, was in-house at some companies, including AOL, where I had been tasked to, to sell off a bunch of businesses and raise a billion dollars of capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was literally uh, waiting on the moving truck to come and pick me up from my house, my mom called me and she was. She and my dad were in Vegas for the holiday, for the New Year's holiday. And she said, hey, your dad's in the hospital and uh, you know it doesn't look good. I said, okay, I'm getting the moving truck. And as soon as I get to DC, I'll call you and we'll figure it out. And she said, you didn't hear me. You need to be on a plane right now. And so I had to fly out to Vegas and my brother joined me. And, and unfortunately, we didn't get to bring my dad home the way we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the really crazy turn of events, it turned out to be SARS turned out to be COVID before it was called COVID way back in 2005. So SARS-1. It was was SARS-2, COV, determinate unnamed or something of that nature. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was really strange. So we had never heard of it and somebody had to tell us what it was and we had no idea. So now all of this craziness around COVID today, we feel sort of... uh, connected to it, you know, in an unfortunate Mm -hmm. way. So I came home at that point. I didn't take the job at AOL. I came home to sort of figure out what does this life look like and and what needs to be done. And 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 the problem was, which I discovered in 2005 and have lived for a long time, there's no job description for a CEO. Every other position in the organization has a job description. You can pull it up, you can say, hey, you're doing a good job or you're not. That doesn't exist for the CEO. And what goes on in the mind of the CEO is, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So let me help everybody else do what they're supposed to do. And to some extent, that is a good and noble thing to do. The problem with that is a CEO is uniquely positioned from a perspective level and from a responsibility level 
to take care of some things that no one else can take care of. And so I wrote a book called A CEO Only Does Three Things. And those three things are culture, people, and numbers. Hmm. It isn't to say that people can't participate in the culture of their organization, of course, or that they can't uh, you know, work to develop talent in the organization or you know, uh, achieve goals or anything of that nature. But the CEO is uniquely positioned to be able to set the agenda around those three things and to manage accomplishment within those three verticals. And so that's what I focus on a lot with my executive coaches, uh, coaching clients today is how are you doing those three things before you do anything else for the rest of the day? And frankly, I don't care if you do anything else for the rest of the day. If you've got the right people in the right culture doing the right things, you won't have much more to do. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take the time to let you know about my latest book. It's called Massimo's Mirror and Other Stories. It's my first collection of short stories. The book uses fantasy, science fiction, and fairy tales to create a world where a magical array of protagonists conquer their fears, battle forces of evil, and step up to meet their potential. Suitable for the secular and religious alike, these stories are full of symbolism and quirky characters, including aliens, robots, angels, demons, superheroes, gods, animals, giants, monsters, and dragons, and just the right length to hold the attention of children and adults alike, all 50 stories are crafted to entertain and make us see behind the veil of reality and perhaps teach something along the way. The ebook and paperback editions are available on Amazon. You can purchase an autographed copy on my website, storykingbooks.com. Also, if you sign up on Story King Books with your email, you'll get a free copy of my latest PDF resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. And now back to today's episode. Now, those three things you said was culture, people, and what was the third one? Numbers. Numbers. Okay, yeah. culture, people, numbers. And when you mean numbers, are you talking about your sales and your you're making your growth yeah so there's hard and soft numbers right and i think it's the ceo who 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 has the right and the authority to set what numbers are we going to pay attention to as an organization because if i call the cfo guess what he's going to want to talk about top line revenue expenses bottom line profits you know how do we make something more efficient which is good and that is his job if i'm the ceo I may say, hey, there are things here that are more important that we would give up profit to achieve. Longevity of employment, for example, or the ability to recruit at a better uh, level, or, hey, we don't want to make as much as we want to give away and those kinds of things. And, and that is all tied in. All three of these are tied in together. Mm-hmm. You can't break one off from the other. And it is only the CEO that sort of sits on the top of the pyramid and the higher you are in an organization, the farther out you should be able to see with your access to more information than other people have. And so that's why I think that that's the case. CEOs do always say to me initially, numbers are the province of the CFO. Like that's who does that for me. And we have to walk through that and say, wait a minute, is that really true or not? What about this kind of measurement? What about this kind of measurement? And then the, it's, the light goes off and they sort of, uh, the light bulb goes off and they sort of you know, engage with that concept at that point. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of reading something about Martha Stewart and how she would like walk in her warehouses and she wanted to know how every little aspect of her business was operating down to janitors, down to the the people with the lowest positions just to see how is everything functioning. And I thought that was, I'm like, wait a minute, you're like the owner of this thing. Why are you bothering with that? But that's what it reminds me of that, that you're talking about culture, people, numbers, you're kind of seeing the overall scope of your company. And sometimes right. the overall scope of the company means, you know, zoning in and seeing uh, how everything is working. Exactly right. And look, Martha Stewart doesn't do that every day, I guarantee you. Right. But if she does it frequently enough, she will have a better understanding because she has better information. That's the whole privilege of being the CEO is you have better information than anybody else. It reminds me, uh, Rommel, the Nazi uh, tank general, he had a term, and in German, you know, they have terms that, you know, 18 words in one, and I, I, I wouldn't bore you with my attempt at German, but the English translation was fingertip feel. So the idea was that he had his fingertips so on the issue, you know, that he was working with, 
that he knew the battlefield so well that he, that he knew way before anybody else did on his team or the other team what they were going to do because of the terrain or because of the weather or because of the functioning of the tank and that sort of thing. CEOs should acquire fingertip feel of their businesses. My first year on the job, and again, remember, I'm coming in and this, you know, I'm, I'm totally grief stricken from the loss of my dad. I'm taking care of my brother and my mother. I'm trying to hold his business together. I'm trying to hold his life together. And in the meantime, I have to get into a business and learn a business that I had never been a part of at all. I stayed every night to, at the office, seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night learning the data, really sort of getting an intuitive feel. And even today, when I am so far removed from the operation of that business, if one of my managers calls me, I know the the data markers that will lead me to the right decision because I put that time in that year. It also brings up another story. Uh, I'm a huge Napoleon fan. You can't see it here, but I have a, a massive Napoleon portrait right behind my computer, just uh, just behind the camera here. But actually, you can see Napoleon on the back on the uh, bookcase back there, if you see. Mm. But anyway, uh, I'm such a Napoleon fan. He once uh, obviously invaded uh, Russia. And uh, the very first battle in Russia, his scouts came back to him and said, oh my God, this is terrible. Uh, you know, they, there are 90,000 troops arrayed against us under the command of, and they gave the name of some general. And Napoleon said, nope, that general is uh, not allowed by the czar to command that many troops because the czar does not like him. If you are certain about the, about the number of troops, we're going to face this general, Kutusov. If you are uncertain about the number of troops, we will be facing the guy that you're talking about. Tell me now, how many troops will we face? Mm. And they said, we, we swear to you that there are 90,000 troops. He said, okay, we're going to face Kutusov. Kutusov always favors the right flank. So we're going to run a left flank. That's how, how much fingertip feel he had on his enemies uh, you know, and every other thing in Napoleon's life, he was totally obsessive about detail. So um, I think it's interesting. And I think we do have to do that. And then the gift for a CEO, a really high functioning CEO is to know all of that and to be able to access all of that, but not access it because he's built a team of people who could do it instead of him or her. Gotcha. So he has to delegate it, but he has to know it so intimately that he knows how to delegate it. Yeah. And it's this really magic moment. Uh, it happens with every single client. I watch for this moment. Uh, the, the coaching that we do is, first of all, make sure you've selected the right people. That, that's a long process. Second of all, make sure you're managing correctly. So you don't hire someone and then uh, go tell them what to do every single minute of every single day, because you've just paid somebody extra to do a job that you're going to do anyway. But the moment that happens is when we coach our CEOs to say, what do you think should happen? You know, so the subordinate comes in and they say, oh, disaster, or here's an issue or something of that nature. And you simply say, well, what do you think should happen? And then you shut up and you listen. And unless they are wrong in a dangerous way for the organization, you let them go through and carry through their, their designs. Hmm. If they're going to, you know, throw the organization into the ditch or cost a lot of money or, 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 or cause pain for somebody or something, obviously you could coach a little around that. But uh, that's what we teach. What do you think the answer is? And it is amazing to me what happens in the mind of CEO when the subordinate says, oh, here's what I think it is. And it's identical to what the CEO would have done anyway. Then the CEO really gets humbled and says, I guess somebody else can help me in this life that I've you know, been living and I don't have to do this. And uh, it's a really beautiful thing when it happens. You know, so you brought up two history things. I'm very curious now about you. You have a degree in history, right? I do. I uh, took a degree in history, uh, history, politics and economy from uh, Emory University, and I studied uh, about a year in Oxford at St. Peter's College as well. Now, and you also went to law school, did I hear that right? Yeah, because uh, I, I think it's a law that if you get a history degree, you pretty much have to go to law school, so I did do that. <laughs> and I came out of law school at a time, it was, it was sort of the first internet bubble, you know, where um, lawyers were getting paid not to be, getting paid more not to be lawyers than they were <laughs> to be lawyers. And so I never went into practice. I went in in-house at, uh, I was one of the first employees at a company that became WebMD. Oh, wow. So where did the interest from history come from? Because you said you had a family business that you sort of inherited. Is that the right word to, to say? 
It, uh, yeah, unfortunately it is. Yeah. I, my brother and I inherited that business in uh, 2005. Yeah. Did you have any plans on going into it eventually or you had other plans? My dad specifically told me, don't do what I do for a living. Oh, wow. Right. He didn't like the idea of a client being able to fire you and, and, you know, and then you be in big trouble because of it and that sort of thing. And that sort of happened. We had really large clients that, you know, it's a cyclical business and they decided not to do business with my dad's firm anymore. And that happened two times during his career. He did that business for, you know, I don't know, 30 years happened two times where he had to start over. And so he said, look, <laughs> you know, go get a nice cushy in his perspective, nice cushy job in a big law firm. And then, um, you know, you can, you can build a different kind of career uh, from that. Now, instead of like going for like political science, why history? Cause that to me, when I hear people like went for a degree in history, it's usually cause they want to teach or something. So it was, it, was that ever on your, uh, trajectory to teach or did you really want to go into law you remember how everybody when they get into school they choose some glamorous uh major and then they don't stick with it and they change majors five times and that sort of thing i don't know why that was a thing for me i was the first kid in my family to go to college hmm. i don't know why that was a thing to me so i said what was the one thing that i could i know i could stick with i know i'm good at it and i could stick with it through all four years and it was history Hmm. And I also knew that I was probably going to go to law school or business school, or so I knew that there was more education for me at a later time. And then also, you know, education, I wanted it to make me an interesting person. I didn't feel like an interesting person coming out of high school and I had eclectic hmm. interests and that sort of thing, but I didn't feel like I was somebody, you know, that other people were necessarily drawn to because I, I knew what I was talking about, or I had interesting things to tell them that they didn't know. And so I think at some level, I figured if I could, if I didn't have a story, I could borrow somebody else's stories and history <laughs> and, and, you know, and sort of tell them. And so I, I did, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good reader and I did a ton of reading. I read a hundred books a year, even today. Wow. And uh, I'm the only guy I've ever met that read every book that he was supposed to read in college. I didn't read them in college, but the year after college, I took every book I was supposed to read and went back and read them all, you know, that sort of thing. Cause I just have that facility to do that. So I think that's the answer as to why that was. And I knew I could get good grades in it and, you know, that would help. Uh, I didn't try to reinvent the wheel when I went to college. Yeah. It's very interesting. When, and when did you discover that you can actually apply the lessons from history to the modern world of business? Because it, it kind of sounds like your mind just sort of works that way anyway. Even your motivation for going to college, you're like, I don't feel very interesting, but I can borrow stories from history and sort of make myself more interesting living vicariously through these historical figures. It's kind of the same principle as using you know, lessons and applying it to the business world. I read one of um, Warren Buffett's shareholder letters, and this would have been in the early 90s. And he pointed to Charlie Munger and said, Charlie has read more than anybody on earth has read. And he remembers things, and now they call them mental models, but they used to, they literally in that shareholder letter called them stories. What Charlie Munger could do is if you had a business challenge, he could say, oh, this is like the Peloponnesian War. And this is how they resolve this issue, or this is like the Athenian dialogue or, you know, whatever it happened to be because he had read history and he had been. And I, I remember, re I, mean, I can see in my mind's eye right now reading that letter and saying, whoa, this is one of the missing pieces because I've been acquiring all of this knowledge, which is effectively trivia. Like I would nail Trivial Pursuit or Bar Trivia or Pub Trivia or something like that. But beyond that, it had no practical value whatsoever. <laughs> but when I got that missing Lego piece, I thought, this is really something. And so I began doing that. Then I was stunned by the entire historical illiteracy of everybody that I met. <laughs> and nobody knew. And, and I get this. I spoke two times last week. I, I shared a stage with Vanilla Ice last week. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, uh, and he listened to the talk that I gave, which was about uh, Winston Churchill. And then he came up to me later and he said, I always hated history in school, but if I had teachers like you who can make it interesting and irrelevant to me, I would have loved it. And I hear that a lot when people, you know, when, when you expose people to history and the mental model connection of how we apply it today, it becomes fascinating for people. Yeah, it reminds me if, if I'm sure you remember, like it was like in the late nineties, everybody was using the art of war 
for business yeah. principles. That was a yeah. huge thing. I mean, I, I guess they still do, but I remember when it became like big and you just saw the art of war and, and how business is like war and you're applying the same strategies. And so it's kind yeah. of like you're taking that, but able to, to apply way more than just the art of war, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of my favorite movies is Wall Street. And I think Wall Street mm. came out in like 87, right? Right mm -hmm. before the crash happened that year. And the the main character, Gordon Gecko, the bad guy in the movie, you know, he tells the young guy, Bud Fox, he says, you know, read the art of war. And, and he quotes Sun Tzu and that sort of thing. And uh, it's super interesting uh, that that still persists uh, today. A lot of people know about it, but don't know about it. I have a supposition and I can't prove it. I've tried to do some research to prove it that Napoleon had a copy of Sun Tzu mm. because uh, you can see so much of his strategy. And I mean, maybe he was that genius that could come up with his own Sun Tzu 1800 years after Sun Tzu. Maybe right. that's the case. But I, I just have a, an idea that he had a copy of Sun Tzu because of those strategies that he employed in the ways that he did it. That's the, the story theory. that I told earlier right, of him knowing that Kutusov was going to be the general was very much Sun Tzu's maxim, uh, know your enemy uh, better than you know yourself. So I think it's pretty interesting stuff. So you read a lot. So who are some of your influences, whether they be books and authors, films, historical figures, where, where do you draw the most influence from? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of places, but just name a few. I obsessed on Churchill over the past uh, three years, and I probably read two to 3,000 pages of his writings, which doesn't scratch the surface of what he wrote, uh, of writings about him, of movies about him, that sort of thing. I had this trouble with Churchill that uh, I knew he was a great man and we're supposed to understand that, but fundamentally didn't understand what contributed to the greatness. And that was the sort of you know, itch in the back of my mind that I had to scratch and figure that out. And I, I think I kind of did. I came to, to terms with, with where it came from, I think. And so that was really um, a, an obsession over the last uh, three years. Uh, I pretty much read anything that I hear recommended. So I just got a book this morning about uh, what money will look like in the future. It's about uh, the mm. digitization of finance, that sort of thing. Uh, so I'll knock that one out and, and hopefully digest a bit about that. I took a speed reading course as an undergraduate. And the sole reason I took the course is that the guy said, the difference between you and I, when we read a headline that we don't understand is I go read five books about it. And I thought, yeah, I don't do that. And I want to do that. So I paid the guy, I had the money, but I paid him $200 to go take a speed reading course. And I think I probably read faster than other people. I don't know that I do because then I went to law school, which teaches you to read word by word. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> very different. details. Yeah. But it's more so that discipline of, um, of building the time in. And I take uh, two weeks every year and do a reading week because Bill Gates, you know, does that. And I thought, yeah, that's the way to knock out 20 books. And so I'll do that uh, twice a year as well. That's the mm. real cheat fact. That's the hack right there is that I can knock out 30 books you know, that way. And then I've only got 70 to go for the year. Hmm. Um, so, so that's all part of it. Yeah. That's how okay. I get to it. Now, let me ask you, is success in business something that is transferable no matter the industry? In other words, are there overriding principles that can be applied in any business that will draw similar positive results? Or is there also a good factor of the industry itself that you're working in where you have to do certain things? Yeah, I think it's like most things. You, there are things you can learn that will, that will make you successful. Those things are soft skills. They're, they're the idea of being disciplined enough to do the thing that no one else wants to do. There is always a niche in business to be found if you go find the things that no one else wants to do. So every job I've ever had where I wanted more money or more you know, promotion or something of that nature... Uh, I would just go find the task that nobody wanted to do and ask ask the boss, like, what's the thing that doesn't get done around here because it sucks? And they would give it to me. And then it did suck. It always sucked. But I always put myself behind it and put my shoulder into it. And at the, at the end of the day, I had bosses who said, good on you. Now I'm going to take that away from you so you can work on stuff that's good. And sometimes I had bosses that said, keep at it, man, because nobody else wants to touch it. And we're going to really reward you for doing that. And uh, so it, that always worked out. If you learn things by rote memorization and then try to apply them uh, to a constantly shifting world, 
that seems to me to be a great recipe for failure. And so it isn't always transferable mm. to, to show people that what used to work doesn't always work and, and works less and less over time. Ideas have shelf lives and um, they have half lives, you know. And, uh, and so that's a thing that, that is toxic in, uh, in business, I think. But, but we all do it. I'm a, you know, I'm a saint innocenter on that. I, I tell my team sometimes, well, that's not how we've always done it. And they say, aren't you the guy that says it doesn't matter how we always, <laughs> you know, so uh, everybody, I think, uh, falls victim to that. And then I'm also learning because I'm, I'm 47 now and I'm beginning to learn what it means to be old. <laughs> I don't feel old, uh, but my kids uh, killed me last week because they, one of my kids said to a friend of theirs that mom and dad were born in the late 19th or the late 20th century. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> killed me. Um, but there's something that happens and, and I don't know a term for it. I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like it's uh, idiosclerosis, right? It's the hardening of the attitudes. You know, it becomes, and I see it in my friends who are a little bit older than me. I don't care what's right or wrong. This is not morally speaking, you know, practically speaking, mm -hmm. this is the way we're going to do it. We're just going to bludgeon our way through it, which is very different from how a younger person handles things. And it is something that I'm, I'm super on guard against in my own mind. And yet I am seeing it creep in <laughs> at about this age. I think it's a, a mid, I don't want to say I'm in midlife. But, you know, honestly, I'm in midlife. I mean, people don't live much longer than 94, you know? So right. uh, it's something that begins to creep in that I'm really interested in and I've sort of taken note of and I'm watching my friends do, you know, sort of do it. And uh, I don't know if there's a book in there or not, but this idea of the hardening of the attitudes is of interest to me right now. Right. It's like there's a stuckness that comes and it probably comes with experience. You know, I'm, I'm, very similar age. I'm 45. So we're in the same yeah. bracket there. And I think it comes with experience. Maybe you, you start feeling like you've lived long enough that you know what's right and wrong. Yeah, I've already figured it out. And so what I figured out is going to be true forever. Right. And uh, that sort of thing. And then also, I think it, you know, my friends are all at that stage in life, the high, uh, the, the high watermark for earning is 46, 47. Uh, typically, I think. And, uh, you know, my friends are hitting that they've had good careers, and that sort of thing. And they, they're, they're sort of none of this is conscious, but they're sort of shrugging it off and saying, eh, uh, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice anything, or I'm not going to add something to my discipline. Uh, that's going to cost me time, money, resources, uh, comfort, anything of that nature. So I think it's the earliest indication of age of you know, <laughs> age setting in. Um, and I won't escape it. But I'll I'll fight against the dying of the light, nonetheless. <laughs> At least you're conscious of it, so that's uh, the first battle, knowing it, right? Yeah, and that's why I think there may be a book in there because I think maybe a lot of us need to pay attention to that. I watched a Facebook friend of mine went to college with him, and uh, he put on Facebook that the garbage collector didn't come that morning, and that there was a box in the middle of the street. And instead of walking out and uh, as a younger man, he would have walked out, uh, put the box in the trash and then taken the trash back up to the house and waited to the next time. There's something that's happening there uh, with my age group. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I got two, two questions left. Do you got time for two more? Yeah, of course. I'm here. Yeah. All right. So it's obvious why people invite you to speak. You have a lot to offer um, in terms of business, in terms of history and your dynamic speaker. What's one last nugget of wisdom you can leave for any of my listeners that are embarking on starting their own business, building their own brands from the ground up? What's something you can leave with them? Yeah, this is uh, fortuitous. And it's actually the last chapter in my book. And it, it keeps being proven to me over and over again. People ask me, how do you be a good CEO? And the obvious answer is buy my book, right? <laughs> but how do you be a great CEO? I get asked that question a lot. And, uh, and so when I was a younger man, I was just privileged to be in the room with really dynamic and great CEOs. So at WebMD, we had a great CEO in Jeff Arnold, who has just recently done a SPAC and has produced another three or $4 billion company. I mean, he does that at the snap of his fingers. He's a really great CEO, very focused. We were negotiating against Rupert Murdoch. So I was able to see Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of my board for one of my companies right now, worked with Jack Welch. He was a contemporary of Jack Welch. And so as I asked those guys this question, or I 
I've watched it play out in the boardroom and that sort of thing. What's the difference between a good CEO and a bad, or, or sorry, and a great CEO? And it comes down to two things that are very related. And one of them is of no value without the other. The first I call preception. It's the ability that we have to see a gift in someone else before they see it in themselves. And, and you, you probably had three ideas come to mind as soon as I said it, right? We can always look at somebody else and, and have better perspective into their lives than we can have in our <laughs> right. own, you know? And we can look at somebody and say, hey, you're really good at this. Like, I'm, you know, I'm surprised you're so good at this or something of that nature. But that is valueless unless we do exactly that, which is to call it from within. Evocation, a Latin term, uh, ex voca, to call from within. And um, so I always tell the story about my sixth grade algebra teacher, who was the headmistress of the school that I that I went to. And you know, first day of a class, she said, "Mr. Taylor, you're going to be the homework monitor for this year." And I don't know about you, but that is not a very glamorous position to be in when you're in the sixth or seventh grade, whatever, however old we were. Uh, you know, at that point where you're in the identity formation, and your identity is largely, I want to find out what's popular and do that. You know, and I'm going to adopt it as my, as my uh, identity, right? And this is the age group. That, my son is in this age group right now, and he comes home every day, sort of trying on a new identity. You know, this kid skateboards, <laughs> and maybe that's what I want to do, or this kid plays football, and maybe that's what I want to do. And you know, I'm going to be a gamer or that sort of thing. And you know, he's he. It's the only age that you have an answer to the question of what do you want to be when you grow up, because you change your mind every single day. So I did not want the job. Well, the rules of the job were you had to go around and ask every single kid, did they do their homework and have them show it to you? And then you had to mark them a yes or no on the chart. If you marked no, and I don't remember, maybe it was one, maybe it was three times in a week, you got invited to a special study hall on Friday afternoon. Well, high school sports take place on Friday afternoons and evenings. And so if you were in study hall, it was possible if it wasn't a home game, if it was an away game that you would miss the bus to go to the game. She knew this, and she was the headmistress of the entire school. No one was going to tell her, including a coach, that this kid needs to leave study hall to go get on the bus. And so the, you know, the starting forward for our JV team was in my seventh or eighth grade class. I really can't remember which it was. And uh, I remember a day that he said to me, come on, man, don't, don't narc me out here. Like, Be cool so that I can play and we can win against the rival and stuff. And uh, it was a terrible position to be in as a kid with no identity. And so, the, uh, so I marked him, no, he didn't do his homework. I marked him, no. And I took the ridicule and the, you know, the beating that came with it you know, psychologically for the rest of the week. And, uh, and we lost the game. Maybe we would have if he had been there or not. Monday morning, I showed up at Mrs. Brownlee's office and I said, I don't want to do this anymore you know, this is terrible. And I don't know why anybody who says that they like me would <laughs> ask me to do this. And I said, I, I quit. And she said, okay, that's fine. If that's what you want to do. I thought you were made of sterner stuff than that. <laughs> and she thought that was going to guilt trip me. It did not. I didn't care. I wanted out. And she said, Mr. Taylor, do you know why I picked you for that job? She said, kids your age don't know the difference between right and wrong. It's not something that we acquire until much later in life but you have the gift of knowing what is right and wrong. And if you have a gift, you also have an obligation. And the obligation that you have is to show the world the difference between right and wrong. And that's why I picked you for this job. But I understand if you don't want it, I thought you were you know, a different kid. If that's not what you want to do, no problem. So I hung my head and I started to pick up the paper you know, that I had dropped on her desk and started to leave, still keeping my homework monitor position. And she said, Mr. Taylor, look at the third line of that uh, paper. And I looked and it was my name. And she said, did you mark yourself uh, that you did the homework or you didn't on Wednesday? And I said, I marked that I didn't. And she said, why would you do that? No one checks your work. Why would you do that? And I said, because I didn't do it. And she put her finger in my face in the classic teacher move, pulled the glasses down and said, Mr. Taylor, right or wrong matters. And you know that. So go out and do right and wrong or, you know, know the difference or whatever and sent me out the door. And I was a different kid that walked out that door than walked in that door. Every single time she asked me to do something, the rest of the time that I was around her, I never even argued with her a little bit. 
I was also then invulnerable to criticism from, you know, the jock who wanted to play as a soccer or the girl that had to babysit that Friday. It didn't matter to me because I had a mission in life. I remember walking down the hall and she said, why isn't your name up on the sign up sheet for student council? And I said, because I would never run for student council. She said, get your name on that list. I did. I won. I have spent a career in politics. I've never held elected office, but I choose in my own little town who holds elected office because of what Mrs. Brownlee did for me back then, because I know the difference between right or wrong. That gift could have lived in me for an entire life and never have been called out by anyone else. And I don't know who I would be today. I don't know if I would be a better or worse person uh, for that matter. But the fact that Mrs. Brownlee did that for me taught me that we each have a superpower where we can call the best vision of somebody else out. And the only thing it takes is a decision to do that. Anybody listening to this great podcast could easily go tomorrow, find someone and call out the gift that you see in that person. Preception and evocation, that's something that we can do and should do on a daily basis. Awesome advice. I'm going to take it myself. Last Good. question. This is just a fun one. You got to put your creative hat on. You mentioned uh, we all have that superpower. Well, I want to ask you, if you could have any superpower, actual superpower, what would it be and why? I had this conversation last night. This is a softball for me because my kid, my my 11-year-old is into comic books now. And I was Uh, into comic books when I was a kid as well. And and then I had a call today with a guy who's trying to find a certain uh, Fantastic Four because he loves the Silver Surfer. And I said, stop. Why do you love the Silver Surfer? And he had a great story as to why he loved it. For me, uh, I would like to be able to speak any language perfectly on demand. I would love to be able to walk the face of the earth and be able to speak to you or anyone else in their native tongue where they could understand me the best. Um, It's not a glamorous one. I couldn't wear a cape (laughs) while I was doing it, but uh, there was a character in comics when I was a kid, and that's the skill he had. That's the superpower he had. And I, I have thought about that many, many times over the years. That's an awesome gift. Nobody said that before. So it's always interesting asking this question. I've, I've gotten a different answer question. each time. <laughs> yeah, great, great question. The guy that loved Silver Surfer, he loved Silver Surfer because the Silver Surfer put himself, sacrificed himself for the benefit of his home planet and uh, was able to direct the big bad character through space uh, where he was only uh, devouring planets that didn't contain sentient life. And I thought, you know, that told me more about that guy than any two hour presentation that he could have <laughs> right. given me about himself. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was a really good one. Yeah. So if people want to reach out to you, if they want to book you for an event or buy your, your book, where can they go about doing all that? Yeah. Uh, the book has its own uh, website. A CEO only does three things.com. You can buy an autographed copy of the book on that. It'll send me a little email. I'll autograph the book and send it right out. Uh, you can also find it on Amazon. The audiobook drops uh, November the 1st, and so people can listen to me read the book. Uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing yet, but uh, that'll drop November the 1st. So I would love to have people uh, check that out if it's of interest. And then trey-taylor.com has uh, all of my uh, personal information. And then the last thing that I do, uh, John Carlo, uh, is you know I do share these little stories and little thoughts that I have about the news and that kind of thing in a, in a newsletter called uh, Plant Your Flag dot live. It's a Substack newsletter. You can sign up. It's free, of course. We're about 10 or 11,000 people that get that newsletter. And it comes out whenever it's ready. So I don't send it every Thursday or I'm not quite as disciplined as all of that. And sometimes I do five a week and sometimes I don't do one a week. It's all about collecting the interesting things and trying to find context uh, in, in crazy market conditions, crazy political conditions, uh, even though we don't talk a lot about politics in that. It's all about trying to find things that make sense and to tell really good stories. So tomorrow's issue, I just uh, completed it this morning, has some stuff from Seneca the Stoic that I think Mm. is pretty interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure all those links will be in the show notes. Trey Taylor, thank you so much for sharing your story, your wisdom, and coming on the Story King podcast. Thanks so much for having me, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. So that was my conversation with Trey Taylor. All of his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. 
Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. Until then.